If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In response to the current COVID-19 crisis, here in Britain, we've been asked to replicate the, quote, blitz spirit. But what exactly was the blitz spirit? Our content director, David Musgrove, called Dr Jonathan Boff, a historian of modern warfare, to find out more about where this idea came from and what else we can learn from the public response to wartime crises. Today I'm joined by Dr Jonathan Both, who is Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Birmingham. His current research focuses on the British and German armies and the development of modern warfare 1914-45 to and on the connection between morale and military effectiveness. He also maintains a fascinating blog at jonathanboff.wordpress.com uh, and one of the most e- recent entries there is entitled Crisis Management for Beginners, uh, uh, where he talks about the government in Britain and its response to national crises in the two world wars. Now, I came across this blog after Jonathan responded to one of my tweets the other day about a feature we'd run on historyextra.com about the nature of the real blitz spirit. And in the light of the invocations by our current politicians to uh, to be uh, using the blitz spirit to face up to the COVID-19 situation, I thought it'd be good to interrogate the story a bit more. Let's talk about how governments got the population on a war footing in the first half uh, of the 20th century and if there's anything we can learn about it. I, I suppose the first question is... Um, is, is a big one and quite hard to, to to get to. But is there such a thing as the Blitz spirit? If so, what was it? And is it what we think of it today? Hmm. Um, the quick answer to that is yes, there was. In the sense that there was a level of popular consent anyway, let's not call it support perhaps, popular consent for the war effort uh, in the Second World War uh, amongst the civilian population, even under the... 
privations of the German air attack. Um, the the sort of the, the myth, I suppose, is that you know there were all these jolly cockneys going around singing "Roll Out the Barrel," uh, 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 you know, in the middle of air raids, uh, uh, never worried, and everyone stuck together and uh, pulled together and and together defend, defeated Hitler. Now, at that sort of level of the myth, uh, you know, that is not true. That was a propaganda, but partly a propaganda artifact designed largely for consumption, first of all, in the United States. Um, there was a very famous film, some, many people will have seen it, called uh, London Can Take It, um, made by Humphrey Jennings and, and Quentin Reynolds, designed to be exported to the United States, which was very much in this um, London Can Take It kind of mode, um, he, he, where he said, for instance, there is no panic, no fear, no despair in London town. London can take it. That was the sort of climax uh, of the film. Um, and, and of course, it was important to convince the Americans that the British were not going to collapse as the French had just done, if, they were, if there was to be any chance of getting American support uh, in the war effort. The second aspect to, to, the, to the manufactured bit of the myth, if you like, is that it was also important that people uh, outside London, particularly in the autumn of 1940, and September and October 1940 in particular, when, when, the, when it was London that was really taking the brunt of the bombing from the Luftwaffe, that people outside London felt uh, that, uh, that they were, uh, how shall I say, that they were involved as well. Uh, and also that they didn't need to worry about morale in London. Uh, and so the uh, Ministry of Information uh, took the film, London Can Take It, designed for America, rebadged it effectively, called it Britain Can Take It, and then sent it off to cinemas around the rest of the country to show you know, what air raids were like uh, and how, uh, it was capable to st how it was possible to, to stand up to them, uh, if you like. Um, so that's sort of how, and that kind of myth, I think, is the is the myth that has been invoked a little bit recently um, in the face of the of the virus uh, pandemic that we that we're currently facing. Now there are obviously some there are some good parallels um, between 1940 and uh, what we're up against at the moment. The enemy is in a sense unseen. Uh, there's no defence against that enemy, or no apparent defence against that enemy, or very little. The risk is unquantifiable. You didn't know if you were sitting in the east end of London whether what the chances were of you getting hit by a bomb. Um, and, and the duration of the blitz was unknown, just as we don't yet know how long this virus is going to be affecting our lives for. Um, on the other hand, I think there are risks in getting too married to this blitz spirit idea. There are risks, I think... First of all, because actually the whole, the reality was much more nuanced uh, and much more complex than, the, than, than that bald myth suggests. The whole idea that one has to be uh, singing in your milk bottle, singing over your milk bottles, as it were, uh, in the aftermath of, a, of an air raid, of course, is, is not what's necessary to achieve victory. That wasn't perceived as what was necessary at the time. Uh, it was accepted by the government that it was perfectly okay and indeed expected that people would feel violated, they would feel angry, not just with the Germans, but with the government as well, for the failure to protect them. But that's not the same as defeatism. Uh, and the, the British government was very careful to, to draw a distinction between those two. 
I think there's the other risk with the blitz spirit is that one get, the government can be complacent about the level of support it can expect. There was, of course, nothing essentially British about the British population's reaction to uh, the bombing of the first, in the First World War. The German population, subjected to much heavier bombing, was equally resilient uh, later in the war, uh, for instance. And the response from the British population to the bombing that was going on was much more uh, complex, much more nuanced, much more um, uh, conditional in their support for the war than would otherwise uh, than would otherwise appear. Um, and the final danger, I think, with the Blitz spirit is that it sets an unachievable standard. This was something that, again, was an issue uh, in, within the Ministry of Information in 1940. They didn't want people in Coventry, for instance, to think that they, were, that they had to be heroes, necessarily. It was OK to be scared. Uh, it was an important message uh, that they wanted to spread. Uh, and, and I think that certainly applies today. You know, there are, there are clearly uh, things that we can all do that will make life better for everybody, but that's not necessarily the same as us all being heroes. Okay. Um, so uh, that's very interesting. Um, just talking about the Blitz specifically, so that was obviously a, a particular moment, a particularly part of the Second World War. Yeah. Um, your research covers uh, both World Wars, in, in fact, wider than that. Was, was there anything uh, in the First World War that was any way uh, comparative to that spirit? So the, the conditions clearly weren't the same in the First World War, but was there anything that uh, either was similar or that the government was looking back to, uh, the government in, in the Second World War was looking back to from the First World War and, and making any comparators from? Um, a, a little bit, yes. There, there, there was a bit of, uh, you know, although the, the, the risk of attack from the air uh, or the risk of civilians in Britain uh, becoming victims of the war directly was pretty small. There were only about 750 civilians killed in the First World War compared with something like 60,000 uh, in the Second World War. Although that those risks were uh, fairly small, they, they did come in two, in two particular ways. The first was uh, inhabitants of coastal towns being shelled by the German Navy. And that caused a lot of outrage because the British Navy, of course, at the time was considered to be the strongest in the world. And therefore, how could it be possible that the Germans could come over to Scarborough, for instance, uh, and, uh, and, and shell and kill British civilians? The second, uh, the second way was from the air, uh, and, and there were clear links here uh, with the Second World War, uh, with raids by Zeppelins to begin with, and then by Goethe bombers um, in the second half of the war. Um, uh, and that did cause, uh, well, panic would be putting it too strongly, but there was very strong public pressure on the government to do more to, to protect Britain, sorry, London, I should say, particularly, because it was really London was the only real uh, uh, target for, for most of the war. Um, more, more should be done to protect uh, the, the British population from, from air attack. Uh, and, and indeed, aeroplanes were diverted back from the Western Front, for instance, to, to strengthen the defences and anti-aircraft guns were installed around London. And I suppose, in a sense, there was a direct link followed through in the sense that <clears throat> the air defence organisation that was set up uh, in the Second World War was based in many ways on that which had been in operation in the latter years of the, of the first. Um, the other sort of feed-through from that was that the, the increase in power and speed and capacity of uh, aeroplanes between 1918 and 1939 led to considerable 
fear on the part of uh, civilian planners in all countries, actually, about the possible dangers of aerial bombing um, uh, and some attempt to be prepared for it. Now, you know, that response was patchy uh, in Britain, for instance, uh, provision of shelters, you know, varied a lot from borough to borough. It was left as a largely as a local authority um, provision. Um, so it was very patchy, but some thought had been given to it. Uh, and uh, when war was declared on the first of September, on the third of September, I beg your pardon, nineteen thirty-nine, um, you know, the hospitals were emptied and so on because people were expecting mass casualties from aerial bombardment, both with high explosive bombs, but also by gas, of course. Now, in the event, the gas never came, uh, and the uh, ability of bombers uh, in the early years of the war, at least, to deliver that kind of dis- the kind of destruction from the air that was envisaged in the interwar period didn't materialize. But nonetheless, uh, uh, it obviously proved a severe risk to human life. Uh, what is it? About uh, a quarter of all British casualties during the uh, Second World War were civilian compared with, you know, a hundredth of one percent in the first. Right. So so the situation today uh, with with COVID-19 is is being described by politicians around the world as uh, as a war on the virus. We we as a as a people are at war on the virus with the virus yeah. which uh, which is clearly um uh, messaging that's designed to uh, enable those politicians to uh to take some decisions that perhaps would be uh, uh unpopular and socially and indeed economically detrimental decisions. So not the things they would want to do in normal circumstances. Yeah. Now, in your uh, excellent blog that I uh, pointed up at the introduction, you make the point that those decisions were also made uh, in, in in wartime in the uh, 20th century, and that there was a certain sense of enthusiasm at that point for uh, um, drastic measures, real decisive action, rather than business as usual. So mm-hmm. do you want to tell me a bit more about that? Sure. And I, I think one needs to have a bit of context here. So in the First World, when the First World War broke out, uh, it came rather like the COVID virus as a bolt from the blue. No one was really expecting it and no one had done, given it much thought. Uh, and the initial response on the part of government was, to some extent, and one can, overest- one, one can, over, uh, one can overstate this, uh, to try as far as possible to maintain business as usual. Britain saw its traditional way of fighting wars on the continent as basically paying allies to do so, while keeping the seas clear for trade uh, and to generate the money that Britain would need to then pay her allies, if you see what I'm saying, rather than traditionally sending a huge continental army, uh, a huge army to fight on the continent of Europe. Now, in the event, Britain ended up, even uh, in 1914 and 1915, pursuing a, a twin-track strategy of both fighting this economic war, if you like, uh, at sea, uh, and also preparing uh, a huge land army. But nonetheless, the, the, the idea, as far as possible, would be to try and maintain some semblance of uh, ordinary economic uh, and therefore social life. But it quickly became clear that the threat uh, that Germany posed uh, in 1914-18 uh, uh, was going to require more than that. And so over the course of the war, you see a creeping mobilisation uh, of the war effort uh, uh, and of the population as a whole uh, to, to, to pull in more and more 
resources to something much more like a total effort. And, and, and of course, the, the assumption at the end of the Second World War, sorry, at the end of the First World War, was that this must never be allowed to happen again. So when you got through to, when it became increasingly clear in the late 1930s that something like this was about to happen again, uh, everyone kind of understood that you had to jump in with both feet, uh, if you like. Uh, there was a level of preparedness that was important, but also that when the worst came to the worst and the war actually started, you would need to throw the kitchen sink uh, at the problem. Uh, and this was particularly emphasised because, I suppose, because Nazism seemed uh, an even more insidious uh, political threat than uh, than the Kaiser had posed. Uh, and, and consequently, when Chamberlain came into the war in uh, September 1939, led Britain into the war in September 1939, and seemed to be follow, pursuing a rather half-hearted policy, both militarily, economically, and in terms of the mobilisation of British resources, that didn't go down terribly well, not least because it wasn't very successful. Uh, and the uh, results as seen in the campaign, campaign, for instance, in Norway in the spring of 1940, uh, were pretty poor. Uh, and as a result, he was kicked out uh, and Churchill came in. Now, you know, there's quite a lot of myth-making about Churchill. Well, there's more than a, lot, a little myth-making about Churchill. There's a lot of myth-making about Churchill. Most of it started by him, of course. Um, and so when he wrote his memoirs, and Chamberlain, of course, was, was dead by the end of the war, um, he was keen to emphasise just as Lloyd George had been the Prime Minister in the second half of the First World War, the, the, the contrast between the vigour and dynamism with which they pursued the war uh, with the earlier sort of lackadaisical approach of Chamberlain and, in Lloyd George's case, in the First World War, Asquith. Uh, and, and there are, you know, historians will pick apart the details uh, of exactly how much business as usual was being pursued and exactly how much control and how much of a total war effort uh, Churchill and Lloyd George presided over in the second halves of the war. But nonetheless, I think when you step back, you have to, one has to accept that in both cases there was an intensification of the war effort uh, under Churchill and indeed under Lloyd George uh, from, what, from what their predecessors had been following. Okay. Um, so w one of the big challenges uh, here that we're facing now and we faced back in, in, uh, in, in the wartime period was the maintenance of morale amongst the general public um, when, when things got really difficult. So um, what, sort of, what sort of measures did uh, wartime governments employ to, to keep spirits up um, and uh, is there any parallels that we should be looking at to, uh, to our current situation? Well, I think there's there's sort of two sides to this, really. I mean, the first is the the uh, spin, if you like, of what what can governments do by presenting the right narratives in the right way. They, in the Second World War, they would have unashamedly called it propaganda. Um, we don't like using that word today, but nonetheless, that's what we're effectively talking about. So, so there's there's making people think that things are going well, and then there's the reality of the situation as well. Now, in the Second World War, for instance, uh, a Ministry of Information was formed early on, the job of which was to both track domestic morale um, and also to help uh, win over support, both overseas, but, but uh, at least as importantly, domestically. 
Um, and and so uh, so their headquarters were in what is now the University of London. It's the one you you see in all the sort of um, uh, television dramas. It normally stands in as Nazi Party headquarters or something like that. Um, <laughs> Senate House in Bloomsbury. Yep. Um, I mean, it, it is an imposing building, isn't it? So. It's a very imposing <laughs> building, and it is that sort of right kind of uh, that kind of architecture. Uh, people like George Orwell worked for it, of course, in the Second World War. John Buchan, the equivalent in the First World War, um, uh, and they did a very good job, I would argue, uh, on the whole of uh, allowing the press to carry on censoring itself, uh, rather than imposing a sort of heavy-handed line-by-line censorship of the press, uh, and building a partnership with the media uh, to to do that. Um, first point. Second point uh, I would make is that you know they were they were pretty good at uh, hiding bad news. They, they undoubtedly did that. Uh, they were vague about the uh, location of air raids, for instance, in the in the national media. They were vague about how many people, what casualties were like. Casualties were frequently described as slight, medium, or he- intermediate or heavy. I think uh, rather than. Uh, giving specific numbers, um, they uh, uh, and they were also quite good. And we've already discussed uh, Humphrey Jennings's film, for for example, at coming up with propaganda that uh, th- that would help motivate people. Now, in fact, the the Britain can take it slogan, uh, which came out in the autumn of 1940, was dropped by the Ministry of Information at the end of the year, end of 1940, uh, precisely because. Uh, it was seen as patronising. Uh, and this was a constant theme in a lot of the propaganda was don't patronise us. Uh, or rather in the responses to the propaganda was don't patronise us. You know, we don't... Uh, we, 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 can take, uh, we can take bad news. What we can't take is lack of information. Brendan Brackham, who was uh, Minister for Information during the Second World War and a close confidant of Winston Churchill's, said, this is a people's war and the people must be told the news about the war because without them and their spirit, we can't achieve victory. So they were very alive to the need for, for, for good news flow, to put it in modern terms. And they also understood that lack of information was worse than bad news. Uh, one of the uh, one of the guys who worked at the Ministry of Information, a, a pre- previously a newspaper edi- editor, uh, had I thought a, an interesting quote, which is which is apt, uh, particularly for this week, when he said, "Details kill the public distrust of vague announcements." In other words, it's all very well laying out broad principles, but what people want to know as quickly as possible is uh, what specifically is going to be done. And I think, you know, you can see that in the market's reaction to the economic statements earlier in the week uh, and in the uh, slight furore this morning about what the details about uh, exam suspensions and what that's going to mean for, for school children. Okay, I should probably mention that we're recording this on Thursday, the nineteenth of March, when uh, when there have been um, uh, some some announcements about school closures in the UK. So that's the context of that um, point. So, um, but that's so that's go on, sorry. So I was just going to say, well, so, so that's all the sort of um, you know that's the myth that that's the spin, isn't it? But but I think there's important things too on the reality of all this because you know when you look at when you look through the records of British morale during the First World War. Um, people aren't stupid, uh, and people weren't being hoodwinked. It wasn't enough just to tell them a good story. People understood um, that things would go wrong sometimes, uh, uh, 
But they wanted overall to feel that the government was doing the best it could, that it had made what preparations it could for the for the uh, for whatever the particular crisis of the time was, that it was coming up with an appropriate response, uh, and that people were being involved in helping to find the solution. So, you know, I think a really good example is that when the Blitz began in September 1940, huge numbers of voluntary organisations, St John's Ambulance, the Red Cross, WRVS, people like that, uh, all got involved in the relief efforts. Uh, They were later taken over by, once government got itself organised a bit later, um, they they started to step out again. But but nonetheless, there was was something that people could could be doing, uh, if you like, that seemed helpful. And the final point on this was that those who were hurt by the war, I mean, in terms of property damage or other losses, uh, were told that they would be compensated. Uh, And this is, I think, a particularly interesting uh, point, because in the autumn of 1940, the government is basically saying, look, if you if you lose your house, for example, as a result of um, as a result of enemy action, we will compensate you. But we can't tell you how much that's going to be, because we don't know how much money we'll have at the end of the war. And that's when we're going to be paying you the compensation. Uh, and that didn't really uh, assuage people's uh, concerns very much. And, of course, it left people seriously out of pocket in the meantime. So then in in, the, uh, in December 1940, the government passed a new war damages bill, uh, which specified exactly what compensation would be paid. And importantly, it, would, it, it gave uh, those who had, who had lo- lost as a result of the Blitz uh, money up front towards that compensation. Uh, not the whole amount, but some of it at least, so they had some stuff to to be going on with. Uh, And also it said uh, that if if, if your income was less than £400 a year, in other words, if you were poor, essentially, or poor or maybe lower middle class, uh, uh, then you'd be getting everything back. So there was, if you like, a flaw uh, uh, on it uh, as well for the the most vulnerable parts of society, I suppose, would be the words we would use today. So... From what you're saying to me, it sounds like details, details, details are absolutely crucial in in uh, in public pronouncements. And so perhaps we should should we see that these regular pronouncements that we're getting from the likes of Boris Johnson and Donald Trump and uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, are, are are a good thing and a wise thing for those people to be doing to maintain morale and to make sure that uh, the public is is being taken with them on on the journey that they they need us to go to. Well, I think you know, I mean, I think again, the Blitz is a good example because. Uh, although it um, didn't come as a complete surprise, nonetheless, people were not the government was not specifically prepared for it and the form it it took, and and there is I think a surprisingly high level and and, and as a result there were severe problems in the response the government response uh, in the early months of the blitz, but they got themselves worked out over time and people I think do understand that some of this stuff takes time. On the, first, on the one hand. On the other hand, there are things, and, and financial markets are a really good example of this, that need to be told sometimes, we will do whatever it takes. You know, sometimes people need to know there's a blank check uh, uh, in operation. But all that said, you know, the, the, the quicker one can then fill in the details, the more confidence people will have in the assurances that, the, that we will do whatever it takes, for example. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, yeah. 
Okay, um, this this question might not be within your area of expertise, so um, so just say if not. But um, you talked a bit about the school closures and yeah. uh, uh, that's happening both in the UK and the US, and the sort of the social dislocation that uh, that that, uh, that enforces on the population. So it's obviously a very live issue now. Um, mm. What? What, what's the what's the parallel in either the First or Second World War uh, with school closures and the public response to it? Well, obviously, there's a slight difference in the sense that you know, the schools schools were not closed in either World War because of a fear of infection uh, in, in the same way, or a spreading disease, I should say, in the same way uh, as they have been today. But actually, there's a really there are some really interesting parallels in the um, in the First World War, in the Second World War. I beg your pardon. The first, planning for what to do with children in the event of war from. Uh, you know, from cities that were at danger of uh, danger of air attack was that they should be evacuated to the to the countryside and large numbers of children were and the schools were also evacuated so for example large numbers of schools were evacuated from uh, west ham i think to uh, oxford yeah, for instance but uh, a lot of the children did not go um, their parents didn't want them to go they didn't want to go, whatever. So what you had was a situation where the schools were in Oxford and the children were still, uh, in many cases, in the East End. Uh, and that caused severe dislocation. Um, parent, fathers, in many cases, were... Uh, well, fathers were out at work. Uh, many, of, many of their mothers were also out at work. The schools weren't running, so the children were missing free milk and they were missing free meals, which is very important, particularly in, in uh, poorer areas. Um, and there were estimates that as many as a million children might have been effectively running wild in London uh, by the middle of September 1939. Now, uh, many of the children who had been evacuated and indeed many of the schools came back, but increasingly what you found as the war went on uh, and when the, when the Blitz started was that schools were being requisitioned for civil defence uh, and therefore were closing down. So as many as two-thirds of all the schools in London, about 60% of those in Manchester, uh, were closed down for that reason. And then, of course, uh, many were being uh, bombed uh, as well. Something like 20% of schools uh, in London were damaged uh, in the course of the war. So in West Ham, for instance, where there were supposed to be 60 council schools, at the worst point, there were only 16, one-six of them, uh, open. Juvenile delinquency rates went through the roof. Convictions for juvenile delinquency went up by a third between 1939 and 1941. And only... And educational provision generally was badly disrupted. So in, by January 1940, uh, about a quarter of children in London were having full-time education. Another quarter were having uh, part-time education. A quarter were being homeschooled, either in their own homes or groups of of children, perhaps in the you know the homes of one of the family members, uh, with sort of uh, wandering uh, schoolmasters going around for a day or a day and a half, an hour or an hour and a half a day, marking homework and so on. Uh, and then probably about a quarter, so something like four hundred and thirty thousand children getting no education at all. Serious problems, uh, as one can see. And if you've ever seen the uh, movie Hope and Glory, uh, there's some, some lovely scenes in there about of school, you know, what it was like to be a schoolboy in London uh, during the Second World War. I won't spoil the ending by telling you, telling you what happens in the last uh, shot. The consequence of all that, however, uh, and so, so what you had by the end of the war was 
in some places, uh, seven-year-olds at school who were unable to read and write as a result of the poor standard of education that they'd received. However, the consequence, or one of the consequences of that, uh, was the 1944 Education Act, the famous act, uh, which, is, which extended secondary education for free uh, to every pupil uh, in the country uh, up to the age of, well, initially 15. It was planned to be, become 16, but that took a bit longer. Um, and the, the historian um, Angus Calder uh, has described that as the most signal measure of social reform which became law during the war itself potentially the most important gesture towards democracy in the 20th century. Which is pretty high praise. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but anyway, my point being that uh, people, as a result of the crisis in education that, that occurred as a result of the, of the war, uh, everyone agreed, and, and that bill, I think, was passed uh, without a division in the House of Commons, everyone agreed uh, that something needed to be done. Uh, and so it was, uh, and you know, major reforms were brought in after the war. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, to what extent is social media different from gossiping in the queue at the greengrocers? And uh, I'm not. I think I would argue that it isn't that different. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So one of the one of the big things that's happening now is uh, governments around the world are having to encourage people to make sacrifices, do things they don't want to do, uh, which they would normally rail against, uh, and they're doing it in the context of liberal democracies. Yeah. Um, what lessons can we learn from uh, from the wartime experiences that you've studied uh, to to help those governments to do that? Or is it simply that you need to resort to illiberal methods to get the people <laughs> to do what they need to do? There's a lim- there are limits to voluntarism, undoubtedly. And, and in both wars, one did end up uh, with greater levels of compulsion uh, being applied. But nonetheless, as you say, these are liberal democracies and popular support is important. And, and I think there are, there are really sort of three principles that need to be applied to that. The first is that the effort has to seem proportional, you know, the sacrifice we're being asked to make has to seem proportional to the 
uh, threat, and it has to be seen to have a chance of success. So, so the government has to be seen to be doing all it can, and they have to explain to us why what we why what they're asking us to do is going to help and is going to uh, is going to work uh, in in this situation. And that's not just I don't think about spin because. So this, you know, it's the wisdom of crowds thing. I think public opinion actually is pretty well able to work out what the scale of a particular threat is. Indeed, you could argue that most of the way, over, certainly over the last week or so, that the public has been ahead of the government in terms of uh, its reading of the threat that we face from this virus. Uh, the second principle, I think, is fairness. People will do an awful lot uh, We'll give up an awful lot. That's certainly the experience of the two world wars, uh, if necessary, as long as they feel that everyone else is being put in the same boat. What they cannot abide is unfairness uh, in that regard. Um, and so I think that's really important. If you, if, if you have uh, unfairness with rich people, for instance, being able to buy more toilet roll than others, uh, for say... Um, then uh, that causes uh, aggravation, and indeed, break, you know, causes people to, to not to not to comply, uh, not to do what you're asking them to do. And the third principle, I think, is this issue of providing hope for the future. You know, we, everyone knows they're in a crisis, uh, the the uh, and that the crisis has to be overcome in the short run. Uh, but again, the lesson of the two world wars is that. Just saying we're going to go back to how things were before is not the right answer. We have to come up with ways to think of a better world uh, that we can inhabit in the future uh, than the one we left behind us in the past. The First World War was largely fought by people who thought that they were going to be able to dial the clock back to how it had been in 1913 and 1914. And what they found in the aftermath of the armistice was that that was impossible. And therefore, when the Second World War came along, uh, it was those people who managed to, to highlight the need to fight not only to defeat Nazism, but also to create a better world, who managed to capture the public imagination uh, and to, um, uh, and indeed, eventually, to, 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 to win the, the general election of 1945. Okay. One of the things that uh, that didn't exist in the wartime period, of course, was social media, uh, which is a big part of the conversation today, which is enabling uh, mass population discourse about uh, about the uh, mm. the things that are being asked of them. Um, do you think that uh, do you think that markedly changes the way that governments have to go about maintaining morale and uh, and imposing um, imposing strictures? Um, and do you think uh, the wartime governments would have dealt any differently with social media than uh, than our governments are today? Um, I suppose there's two sides to that. I mean, the, the first is is you know I. Do I think that the government ought to be trying to censor social media? And the answer to that is definitely no. I don't think they could, even if they wanted to, um, frankly. But I think I suppose the the the, the more in, or the, the the more complex question is, you know, to what extent is social media different from gossiping in the queue at the greengrocers? And uh, I'm not. I think I would argue that it isn't that different. Um, that. People are always going to chat amongst themselves. There's always, always has been and always will be rumours flying around. Okay, social media can spread it a bit further, 
than uh, was was previously the can spread these kind of rumors quicker and, and and more widely than was previously the case but it doesn't strike me as being qualitatively different even if it is different in the sort of speed with which things can move um and in any sense you know sensible people have always been cautious of the rumors that they overheard in the queue at the greengrocers just as people are skeptical about everything they i hope <laughs> skeptical uh, about what they read on um uh on social media yeah and i guess you know government things like loose talk cost lives would suggest that they were aware of the uh the risks of the of the green grocer conversation as much as our governments were aware of social media today absolutely i think that's a very good example yeah, yeah. um okay this is a this is a, a wild question so feel free to just uh shout me down if uh if you mm-hmm. think it's stupid but um do you think there was anything inherently different in the nature of the national psyche, if that's a phrase of any value, between the people who lived through those wartime crises we've been talking about and us today? I mean, it's a really interesting question. And in a sense, that's what historians are implicitly struggling with with everything they do, um, because they're trying to work out why things, why people did the things they did in the past, but obviously from working within the, you know, the today's mindset. Um, uh, I don't see any reason why that should be the case. Let's put it like that. Um, The basic principles by which we live our lives, I don't think are markedly different. And I'm thinking about, you know, broadly liberal democracy, broadly um, humanist stroke, Judeo-Christian ideas of uh, uh, about, you know, how to live in society and that kind of thing. Uh, those seem to me to be pretty similar. Uh, and although the cultural makeup of the country has obviously changed a lot since the 1940s and for the better, um, I, I don't see that that, 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 it, that any of those necessarily, uh, uh, necessarily change. So I think it's very tempting and very easy for you know, certain right-wing tabloids I can think of, for instance, to say, well, we're not as tough as we used to be and, you know, where's the where's British stiff upper lip gone and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I think what that's doing is effectively both overemphasising the extent of, uh, of stiff upper lip in the past and, and buying too much into the Blitz myth about the past and also underestimating the resilience of, you know, ordinary humans with ordinary human values uh, today, which I don't personally see much reason to be very different. It seems to me that the way that we approach problems and the successes we have and the mistakes that we make are both in very similar uh, today to what they were in 1940 uh, or indeed in 1914. And that argues for me that there's a, some, at least some or quite a large measure of continuity in exactly what you're asking about. Okay. Last one from me. Um, if you were uh, invited into Boris Johnson's Cobra meetings or into <laughs> President Trump's war cabinet, uh, you know, uh, uh, cabinet meetings in the States, uh, and they said, what lessons can we learn from uh, from your research into into the wartime experience? What, what lessons would you offer them? I think I'd come back to, to those three principles that I mentioned earlier about proportionality of threat and chance of success. Uh, about the need for fairness and about the need to create a sense of travel towards a, you know, a, a better future. 
uh, and that those should be the defining principles of whatever policy uh, we come up with. Of course, there's going to be all sorts of sort of minor details here, there and everywhere that one can draw lessons from or not, you know, um, uh, uh, from the past. Uh, you know, one that I've spent a lot of time thinking this morning about is, you know, is, is should we nationalise the banks or should we uh, close the stock exchange, for instance? Um, we, in 1914, they did close the stock exchange for five months, uh, but never nationalised the banks. Um, so what are the conditions under which one should? Those sorts of questions. Um, but that, those are really questions of detail. And I think the, uh, the point of, of policy, you know, I, I, but I think the point is uh, that policy needs to have principles that people can buy into if we're going to maintain public support and if those, publics, and, and if those policies are going to work. Uh, in this particular case, so uh, it's the policy, it's the principles. I think that are more important than the details. Brilliant. Uh, is there anything critical I've missed out? Any questions that uh, that uh, I should have asked you, or anything that uh, that you think would be cogent for our listeners to hear? I don't think so. It's a huge subject, isn't it? And I'm conscious that I probably gave much too long answers, and I do apologise for that. <laughs> um, no, your, ans- your answers were excellent. You know, for all the sort of this is about blitz spirit again. Okay. And, sti- and stiff up a lip, and you know, yep. for all the we can take it um, myth, um, there's plenty of evidence that things were not going great <laughs> uh, at various points of time. So, for example, in when, when the bombing of the East End really began in the autumn of 1940, first of all, there was a huge outflow of people from. from the uh, affected areas. Uh, People were uh, going down to Kent or going up and just getting out, just getting out into the country, if they could, um, first of all. The whole southern half of West Ham, uh, they demanded, the local council demanded be evacuated uh, because things were getting so bad uh, there in the East End. Um, And for all the sort of, um, you know, as I say, we can take it kind of... uh, uh, comments. There's also there's just a couple of quotes that that from um, from people from observers at the time. Uh, when when the siren goes, people run madly for shelter with white faces. One woman, she's about sixty years old, who had been bombed uh, out of her house, said, "I can't stand it. It's killing me. This ain't war. This is murder." Um, and there were instances of anti-Semitism. There were instances of you know, class warfare, effectively. The king and queen were booed on a visit to the East End, we think. Not 100% sure. Only one source says that, but we think. So even though there was, you know, no mass breakdown of morale, that's certainly true, nonetheless, there were dissenting voices, if you like, from the myth, uh, shall we Shall we put it that way. Um, overall, the, end, the population ended up coping, but... Um, but it was not a, it couldn't be taken for granted i suppose that's the point i'm trying to make that was jonathan boff his current research project looks at the history of money during wartime so look out for more on that from him there's also plenty more content on the second world war on our website historyextra.com thanks for listening today's podcast was produced by ben Hewitt and jack bateman Listen in next on Wednesday when Sophie Roberts will be discussing her new book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia. Hey.